This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. If you're a Toronto homeowner, by now you've received a yellow notice from the City of Toronto in the mail about the new Toronto vacancy tax. You have until February 2nd to declare that you reside in your home or else face a $250 fine. If you own a residential property that is sitting empty, you will need to pay the tax, which is 1% of the property's assessed value. There are a number of exemptions, like renovations, that have already been permitted, under which you would be allowed to leave the home vacant. The city plan is designed to free up housing and raise between $55 and $66 million a year. Joining Libby on Wednesday to discuss, John Caliendo, co-chair of the ABC Residents Association, Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage, and Alan Ritchie, managing partner at Loopstra Nixon LLP and adjunct professor of law at Toronto Metropolitan University. When I look at these things, I, I think about it both as a, as a citizen and as a lawyer. And, you know, there's a lot of these municipal things that, that don't ultimately get enforced. Certainly the powers are there, the bylaws have been passed properly. The question is whether or not they will actually enforce this thing uh, at the end of the day and whether the behavioral impacts that they're trying to achieve will will actually be achieved. And I think that remains to be seen, but, but we've had clients calling us up and wondering whether or not this is another parking ticket scam and we've got to tell them no it's uh you know it's it's the real deal let's go to phil soper phil you're in the real estate business so first of all how many people do you think actually keep their homes vacant and why would they do that other than you know a long trip or something well that's the real question here is this uh, a political move or is this something that could actually move the needle on housing supply which we uh, we have a housing supply uh, crisis in the GTA and in large municipalities across the country. We've had a similar tax, a similar policy in place in Vancouver since 2017. And it has shown to move the number of people declaring that their property is open. That may be different than, than the people that actually have it open by about 1%. And uh, that isn't a lot, but it is material. And it did raise uh, money similar to what the, what the uh, proposal says that it can raise. So where I look at it is if, if it's we don't like home flippers, it's house flippers, people who, who buy to speculate and flip the, the property uh, like it's uh, an equity or something, a stock. Um, if they add value to renovations, that's different, but just house flippers aren't helping. So there's nothing wrong with the public policy, and if it does contribute to public coffers, and they say they're going to redirect it into affordable housing, which is great, uh, then I have no issue with the the policy at a, at a high level. Will it be effective in materially helping our housing supply crisis? No, it's it's a it's a minor move. 
the underlying problem is a very real problem. The Bank of Canada, you know, Deputy Governor Beaudrey stood up in November 21. Uh, the British Columbia Cullen Commission, they've all stood up and said money laundering, money flows, investor-driven speculation is a real problem in this country, well, at least in British Columbia. And in the case of the Bank of Canada, they said it's driving the, inflate, the, um, the housing bubble, the evaluation bubble. So the idea here is not, uh, I don't think the intent here is to, you know, challenge the, uh, the quintessential snowbird who might leave their housing va- their house vacant for three or four months. Well, yeah, no, you, it, it's, you, uh, there's a six-month window, as yeah, there exactly. is with OHIP. So you're base, are you saying that you're okay with it? Or? Absolutely. If, if we can take some of the pressure, the problem is it's, it's such an easy thing to circumvent. So to your other two speakers' points, this is going to be very easy to circumvent. But the underlying problem is very real. There are, there are money flows, especially into the condo development industry, which I financed, that are very much offshore, very much you know, speculator-driven. If those units end up in the rental market, full-time rental market, that's great. But when they don't, that's the problem. And I, I agree 100%. And, you, you know, John, I, I see that in my practice all the time, that what we have is, is a problem that is caused by the inability of the municipal government to speak to the provincial government and the provincial government's inability to speak to the federal government, because these are problems of, of income tax non-reporting, provincial system that oversees the land registry that has no ability whatsoever to communicate to the federal system that that oversees the income tax. And now we've got the municipal government coming in trying to use the bylaw to solve all these problems. And and ultimately, you know, there's there's game playing and, and, you know, no government talks to the other one and and you can circumvent all of these things. Alan Ritchie, managing partner at Loopstra Nixon LLP and adjunct professor of law at Toronto Metropolitan University. John Caliendo, co-chair of the ABC Residents Association and Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage. They joined Libby to talk about the new Toronto vacancy tax. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Mayor John Tory seems to be fed up with responding to concerns and questions about his new strong mayor powers granted to him by the Ford PCs at Queen's Park. Ahead of this past week's city council meetings, Mayor Tory insisted to reporters that nobody talks with him about this new law, Bill 39. He said they talk with him about housing, about community safety, but nobody talks about strong mayor powers. When filling in for Libby on Thursday, that's where I started the conversation with our Tune Into the Town panel. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor at Blog TO. Karen Stintz is CEO at Variety Village. And David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. On the question of whether or not people are talking about the rule by minority, I think the mayor might want to listen a little harder. Uh, certainly, he'll try and hear. He should try and hear the voices that understand that democracy works best when you respect the majority rule. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I think he might need a new strategy um, <laughs> because, on the one hand, he says nobody cares about his minority rule that he asked for, which nobody knew he asked the province for when he was during the re-election campaign, and yet he justifies it by saying everyone's talking about housing, but. The reason he gave to going to the province was that he couldn't get suburban councillors on board to his housing plan. So, if everyone's talking about housing, why did he need the extra powers? Mm-hmm. 
is a disconnect for me. And then, you know, at the highest level, it's just, you know, it's, it's from just to observe the, this council that is now the most diverse council that the city's ever had to be at the same time so disempowered when it comes to such an important issue for me is discouraging. Lauren O'Neill, your thoughts about these special powers? You know, I think the mayor has been doing this job for a long time, enough that he's kind of become a professional at constructing narratives. And that's kind of what he's trying to do. It's almost like putting his ears over his hands like, la, 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 nobody cares, nobody cares. And if he keeps saying that and he keeps declining questions on the record about this, about Bill 39, then, I mean, it stands to reason that he would hope it kind of just goes away. I do think that a lot of people care, but I mean, 6,000 people signing a petition is still just a drop in the bucket of the entire population of Toronto. I don't think that the average person really understands what's going on, but I don't think that it's accurate for him to say, oh, nobody cares about this. Like, it is a pretty big deal. Let's talk about Mayor Tory's 2023 Housing Action Plan, which in an overwhelming vote in favour is going to city staff who will prepare a report to bring to city council by March. Karen, explain that process for us. Yeah, well, there's, you know, it's a great sweeping visionary document around how housing is going to get built. But but the reality is, you know, having staff report back on that in March is probably unrealistic because um, in addition to trying to figure out what this all means, they're also dealing with 150 requests for land conversions from employment to mixed use. And they have other things that they're managing and they actually have development applications that are already in the pipeline. And so it's great to say that it'll come back by March. It will not come back by March. And the reality is there's a lot of development permissions that exist today, and we're seeing already that the housing starts have slowed down uh, purely as a function of interest rates. And city council can approve all the planning applications that they want. It doesn't mean that housing is going to get built. And so it, it's great. Congratulations. But let's. this is not... This is just the very beginning. This is not going to result in more housing immediately. Lauren, what do you make of this plan? Well, like Karen said, it's a great plan, but I'm not super confident that it will be implemented in any sort of reasonable time frame. I I see this with a lot. uh, These big proposals go forward, and then they have to send it to city staff to make a proposal, which will come back, and then they'll vote on that, and then maybe they'll vote to make another kind of recommendation, and it just seems to go on and on and on. Uh, I really do think that people are responding well to the contents of the housing plan, you know, letting um, multi-story buildings exist in neighborhoods where that's not currently allowed, uh, legalizing rooming houses. Um, I believe that some 12 people died in fires or 14 in rooming houses in the last, I forget what time period, but only two died in legal ones. It's the illegal rooming houses. They don't, they don't have to be up to fire codes. They don't have to abide by these rules and people are literally dying. So if even just that part of the plan was pushed through. That could literally save lives. I think it's great, but it's just a slow process. I don't think it's going to immediately get us the housing we need. Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at BlogTO, Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Fightbacks, tune into the town panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, entertaining on a budget this holiday season. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
We found out this past week that results of pap tests in Ontario can be delayed for as long as six months. Statements from both Life Labs and Dynacare say there are delays due to staffing shortages and increased demand as many women return for routine appointments and screenings for cervical cancer though neither quantified the scope of these delays. The Life Lab's response also points out there has been a global decline in the number of cytotechnologists, the specialists who look for precancerous cellular changes, with only 12 to 14 new cytotechnologists graduating each year in Canada. Joining me on Thursday to put in perspective this concerning news, Dr. Yolanda Kirkham, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto and Obstetrician-Gynecologist at Unity Health Toronto. Normally, pre-pandemic, PAPs would take about six weeks to come back. And um, PAP tests are a screening test that we recommend. And now, for example, in Ontario, it's every three years that it's recommended. But with everything, there's been a backlog. Healthcare workers have always been run off their feet. Um, But because this pandemic is still going on, and plus we have the winter season with other respiratory illnesses like RSV and the flu, um, I think the lack of technicians to help with this and people actually taking time off when they're sick, all of these good habits we've learned through the pandemic is just causing that backlog. I myself was surprised, too, the other day with a patient who had had a July pap smear, and I didn't get the result till November, and also it wasn't until I actually followed up and marked it as a bit more urgent. So, you know, things are catching up, and like you had mentioned, it does take some time to have new training for staff, but there are some innovations coming along the way that should help um, alleviate the backlog. Okay, tell us about those. Yeah, so several provinces have changed some of the ways they've, they're doing the HPV uh, screening, including HPV testing. Um, and so different ways to do the test, as well as possibility for self-tests, that is coming down, down the pipeline. But as you know, with everything, including recommendations and then implementation and execution, that will take some time. Uh, I have also seen some results sometimes that are done more automatically or electronically for screening. And so that's another way companies are uh, managing that. But there is also a difference between private lab results and hospital results, I have found. So there is some variability in where you are located as well. So let's talk about a worst case scenario. A woman having had her pap test within the last five or six months has cervical cancer or cancerous cells, um, but the results have not come back. How much has that cancer grown in that time where uh, the results haven't been processed? The good thing about cervical changes is that it is slow. So I hope in our discussion today, um, it can be reassuring uh, for women and people waiting for their pap tests or the results or haven't gotten around to doing them. So we know that cervical cell changes are very slow. And in fact, that's why things and guidelines have changed over the years as in when to start them and how often to do them. And these are generally different across the provinces. But for example, in Ontario, we now don't start pap smears until age 25. Mm -hmm. And the recommended screening is every three years. And this is because we know that cervical uh, cell changes 
are related to HPV, which is the human papillomavirus. And this is an incredible fact. Like, there have been very few cancers where we have found a cause. And so this is really important. And there are actually a lot of ways uh, people can prevent and protect themselves from cervical cancer, which I'm happy to go into later. Mm -hmm. So very slow-growing cell changes. And when you do get an abnormal pap back, one thing I would recommend that people ask the doctor is, you know, what is it exactly? Because, for example, there's something called ASCUS, A-S-C-U-S, which is atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance, meaning it may not be anything bad, we're not sure, repeat in six months to a year. And so if it's ASCUS, this is really common. Sometimes some inflammation can cause it. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a precancer or anything abnormal, but it's really important to ask your doctor um, what that result is. And sometimes it will clear itself up. The next level up is a low-grade finding, so low-grade versus high-grade. These are where there are starting to get some cervical cell changes, and then high-grade where there's a higher risk of cervical cancer um, and need for intervention, and then cervical cancer. So all of these are slow-growing. Sometimes when you get a low-grade result, for example, again, the PAP or intervention may be in 6 to 12 months, knowing that a lot of these changes actually regress meaning the body can clear itself of the HPV infection and your, your pap may go back to normal. Dr. Yolanda Kirkham, assistant professor at the University of Toronto and obstetrician gynecologist at Unity Health Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's the season for festive gatherings, both entertaining at home and dining out. It's also the season of lists, what's hot and what's not, and the latest trends. On Wednesday, Libby was joined by two foodies to talk about these trends and in the context of huge food inflation that we are seeing now, with more of the same expected in the new year. Lucy Waverman is food columnist for The Globe and Mail, and Renee Suen is food editor at Blog TO. Well, I guess the one thing with restaurants, if we were looking at just the overall scope of things, they're in a great way that we are able to dine back at restaurants, so it's really good to see restaurants being filled once again, although there is still a lot of the sensibilities, you know, being able to operate around a time where the pandemic's technically not over, and we're going back into kind of regular mode, but there's just the ability for businesses to be conscious of what their customers' needs are. So we still have that in place in terms of some physical distancing. Most of the times with restaurants, there are some still uh, requesting that uh, customers or diners do wear their mask when they leave the table and other sorts of um, you know technologies at the table. Like no longer are many restaurants having paper menus. We see a lot of QR codes. So that's kind of something that was put in place during the time of, I guess, the height of the pandemic, and we still see that present. Last night I was dining at a restaurant named Novello, and they still have, I guess, these like glass, plexiglass sort of wall installations between tables. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of that going away. So if we're talking about like remnants of the past two years, um, that's part of it within the dining room. But I also feel like we'll probably talk about it within the segment. It also influences some of the decisions in food choices that uh, restaurants are either offering diners or diners themselves are gravitating towards. Lucy, during the pandemic, more people cooked at home. Is that trend sticking and what kind of stuff are people into? The trend is sticking. People are 
cooking more at home. It's a bit of a generational thing, I think. I think younger people, Gen X, Gen Y, excuse me, and um, probably millennials are continuing to eat out as much as they did before. I think after that, people are are cooking at home. There's reasons. I, you know, some people, older people, for example, are worried about going out and going into restaurants and getting COVID, and they would prefer to eat at home. But there is also a trend towards people actually finding that they enjoyed cooking who had never cooked before or who had never enjoyed cooking before. And another little trend on that is that husbands and wives or partners are cooking together. Hmm. And that is something that has really changed because, you know, for a long time, oh, the kitchen is the woman's domain and all the rest of it. Not now. And in fact, if you go to the grocery store, take a look, you'll see a lot more men grocery shopping. Well, Renee, I have noticed that I I don't eat out that much. It costs a fortune now. It's true. I feel like um, I I think part of the, it's not even just the pandemic itself, but as we were coming into that period, there was beginning to be a lot of more social awareness in terms of the way that restaurants operate or even kitchen and staffing and and needs and how much of that service industry were either underpaid um, or they did not receive uh, the, I guess, compensation that you would typically expect if you were working, I don't know, like 80 hours a week or whatnot. Oh, my God. Or even, even um, like service staff where I think this was a big debate prior to the pandemic and, you know, some restaurants have since try to um, incorporate this, which is um, tipping, whether or not you tip or whether or not that should be part of the salary so that um, employees didn't have to depend on uh, tips from customers and, and vice versa, you know, whether or not customers felt like it was, I think, this became part of the debate, whether or not it was their responsibility kind of to supplement incomes, especially during the pandemic when we hear, heard of a lot of individuals in the service industry not either being able to apply for EI or, or anything like that just because, you know, maybe they didn't report all their hours or they didn't have the same amount of hours that they actually worked. Renee Suen, food editor at Blog TO, and Lucy Waverman, food columnist for The Globe and Mail. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the Best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jill in Toronto phoned about the notice on the new vacancy tax and the trouble she ran into while declaring that she lives in her home. We got this notice and first when we looked at it, we said, ah, it doesn't apply to us because we don't have any property that's vacant for six months. And then we read it again and said, "Uh uh-huh, it says everybody must uh, apply. So we called that uh, portal and got the answer that the portal is not working, it's under repair. And we are saying, why do you send out notice when your portal is not ready? Then I called 311. It says, uh, call 311 if you need assistance. So I called 311. They said, oh, yeah, it's not working, but we are trying to fix it, and hopefully we'll fix it by the 15th. 
Gerald in Scarborough called about the new strong mayor powers granted to Toronto's mayor. The only way checks and balances are able to help us is if we have people being able to speak. If we do have opposition, unfortunately in this time we have Ontario, which uh, is ruled by a person who won 42% of the popular vote, and yet he has 67% of the seats. So he has an authoritarian, in his mind, mandate to do whatever he wants. And in this case, this is going towards our cities as well. Kate in Toronto also called with her concerns and thoughts around the strong mayor powers. I think Doug Ford has a strategy. He knows that in four years, Tory will step down and Doug Ford will probably, I'm hoping, he will be trounced in the provincial election. So I think his strategy is that either he will run for mayor or his nephew will run for mayor and then they can do what they want in the city. He will be a dictator. That's my opinion. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Daryl in Toronto, who is also concerned about strong mayor powers for Toronto's mayor, and John Tory's comments that nobody cares about this. I think Mayor Tory needs to understand that a lot of people are concerned about it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be talking about it. I think it's really absolutely wrong. Part of it is there not a section of it that says as long as it agrees with the province yes. and their agenda? So this is just another way for Doug Ford to mess with Toronto to manipulate Tory so that he can deflect. You know, when Tory's doing something that he wants done with the strong mayor powers, it's on Tory. When it's not what Doug Ford wants, he can squash it. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.